All right, you can turn over to Romans chapter 6. We will be having communion time at the end of our service today, so... We're in Romans chapter 6, and we'll be looking today at verses 18 to 23, but I want to read the whole context uh, for us. So I'll be reading from uh, verse 15 down to uh, 23. So you can follow along in your Bibles. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. What then are we to sin because we are not under law? Because we are not under the law, but under grace, by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members to slaves as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. But what, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our text for this morning. And I just want to spend a few moments kind of reviewing what we looked at last week because it's kind of a continuation of that message. We looked at three points briefly. We started in verse 15 when he asked the question, What then shall we become a, uh, shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? And it's the same question that he asked uh, back in, in verse uh, 1, uh, shall, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Hey, Terry, could you check the air there? Um, and so he wants us to understand, first of all, if you think that being under grace means that you are free to sin, you do not understand God's grace. If you think that just, well, now I can just do whatever I want because God's forgiven me of all my sins and it doesn't matter, um, you have a misunderstanding of what grace is. And you need to go back and listen to the message from last week to understand that. Second point we looked at was the only options are these. There's only two. Either you're a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness or a slave to God or a slave to obedience. If you're a slave to sin, it results in death. If you're a slave to God or obedience, it results in righteousness. It results in eternal life. And so he says that there in verse 16. He says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves as someone, as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? One or the other. You can't be in between. You can't have one toe over, you know, as a slave of sin and one toe in the obedience camp. 
You can't just come to church on Sunday thinking somehow you're earning brownie points with God and then live like the devil the rest of the week thinking, boy, I've got to get back to church next week and take care of all this. It doesn't work that way. You're in one of those two camps. And then thirdly, we looked at the only way that you can change from being a slave of sin to being a slave of righteousness is for God to free you from your sin by changing your heart. And that's what he says there in verses 17 to 18. And I want to spend a little more time here because we didn't really get much into verse uh, 17 last week. But it says there, but thanks be to God. When you stop and you think about that, we were all slaves of sin. That's what he says, that though you were slaves of sin. You know, the Bible says in 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, with God, and yet we walk in darkness, we live in a way that doesn't depict righteousness, then the Bible says that we lie and we do not practice the truth. Pretty straightforward. So if you're saying, well, I got fellowship with God, and yet you're living in a way that's, that's not in accord with the Scriptures as a way of life, you're lying. You're living a lie. 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 and 6, it says this, Whosoever says, I know him, I know God, I'm a believer, yeah, I know Jesus, but does not keep his commandments, once again, it says he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. And even down a little further, it says, But whoever keeps his word, there in verse 5, in him truly the love of God is perfected. But we, by this we may know that we are in him. If you want to know you're saved, here's how you know. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. The Christian life isn't rocket science. You know, if you're calling yourself a Christian, then you should be walking like Christ. You should be living in a way that's honoring to Christ. If you're not, don't call yourself a Christian because you're probably not a Christian. 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 says this. No one born of God or born again, no one saved, no one transformed by God's power makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God. Who's saved? Who's born again? And who are the children of the devil? Who's not? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. See, the Bible is, is pretty, it's pretty simple to understand. It'd be kind of like if you got a new job and you started on Monday and you went in the first day and they said, hey, we're glad, here's your office, here's the work and everything. And on Tuesday, you went to the coffee shop, but you never left. And everybody that came in the coffee shop, what are you doing? Oh, I got a new job. I got a brand new job. It's great. I got my own office, everything. Okay, well, great. Enjoy your week. Great. Come in a couple hours later and you're still sitting in the same booth. I'm so excited about my new job. What are you doing? You're not living up to what reality is. Yeah, you have a new job, but you're not doing it. You're not going in to your employer, punching the clock and doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're at the coffee shop bragging you have a new job. 
If that's the attitude, you won't have your new job very long, will you? I don't think so. And see, we need to think about that in, in, in the way that we live for Christ. You know, if you claim that you're a Christian, then you're going to manifest righteousness. You're going to see righteousness in your life. You're going to manifest obedience. Look at what he says there in verse 17. He starts off and he says, thanks to God. Whenever you're talking about your salvation or somebody else's salvation, those should be the first lips, words off your lips. Praise the Lord. Thanks be to God. Because it's God who saved them. If you're saved here this morning, who do you thank for your salvation? Do you get up in the morning saying, man, I am so glad that I figured this whole thing out. <laughs> I'm just so smart. Had the ability to look at all the world religions and, and I chose the right one. Or man, I'm so glad that guy came along and on the train and, and started talking to me. He had such a slick presentation and boy, those tracks were just so, I just couldn't resist coming to Christ. I mean, every word just dripped off his tongue like drops of gold. And, oh, he just wooed me with his words. And, and, and that's why I gave my life to Christ. You didn't come to Christ because you were convinced intellectually. You didn't come to Christ and commit your life to Christ because someone had a slick little presentation or you heard some fancy preacher that had all the words right and, and made you cry. That's not why you came to Christ. The Bible says very clearly, Jesus says, no man comes to me except what? Except the Father draws him. You didn't come to Christ for any other reason. But God brought you here. God saved you. And so we always thank God for our salvation because he's the one who's the author and the finisher of our faith, the Bible says. It's God alone who can break out of the break you out of the yoke of the the bond of slavery to sin only he can do that you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps you can't come to church enough to do that you can't take communion enough you can't get dunked in the water enough that finally god to say okay that's enough now I'll, now you're saved no the bible says very clearly we're saved not by works but by grace through faith we're saved by faith. And so it's important that we understand that, that it's God's grace that saves us. And it's He saved us. We didn't save ourselves. Salvation is of God and no other, beloved. There's no other name given among men under heaven by which you must be saved other than Jesus Christ. You can't get saved by joining Another religion, you can't be saved by trying real hard to save yourself. It doesn't work that way. And you'll find that throughout the whole, whole New Testament. Every time it speaks of salvation, the apostle or whoever's writing the book is going, boy, thanks to be to God. They give thanks to God. But then look at what he says here a little further. He says in verse 17, that you were once slaves of sin. You were once slaves of sin. In other words, there's a transformation that took place. You were moved from death to life, from sin to God, from darkness to light. And the only one that could do that is God. 
It's interesting, he says here, you were slaves of sin. That verb tense in the original language is in the imperfect tense, which basically means it's happened back here in time somewhere, but it has ongoing results. In the past, you were continually, in the past, you were continually a slave to sin. You couldn't help yourself. That's the boat we're all in as human beings. That's what the Bible says. We don't want to admit it. People don't like to hear that. I mean, you have to understand from the very start, you by nature have been a sinner continually over and over and over again. It's your nature. That's your natural condition. There's a dominance of sin in your life. It's our default. And the reason it's there is because all the way back to our mother and father and then go back all the way to Adam and Eve. That's what the Bible says. Through one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. So all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so men and women who are born into this world are born into this tremendous condition of slavery to sin. And we've covered that back in Romans 3. Verse 10, there's none righteous, no, not one, none that understands, none that seeks after God. They've all gone out of their own way. They've all become, the word means sour. In other words, there's nothing good in them at all. It's like going to the refrigerator and taking a big gulp of sour milk. Man, if you knew it was sour, you would not drink it. It says their throats are an open sepulcher. Their tongues have, been, uh, have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery in their way. The way of peace they have not known. And there's no fear of God in their eyes. That describes our culture. That describes the day and age we live in. But that's the description of the human race. That they're slaves to sin. Now, we don't like to admit that. As a matter of fact, if you t- talk to somebody who's not a Christian, they'll say, oh, yeah, I, I'm, I don't want to get under that bondage of Christ. You know, it's, I want to be a free man. I want to do what I... You're not a free man. Don't joke. You're a slave to sin. That's what the Bible calls you. You can't help yourself. Now, by the world standard, you might be a wonderful father, or a great husband, good worker, by the world standards. But by God's standards, the Bible says clearly you're a sinner. That's your condition. You don't have any liberty not to sin. As a matter of fact, the first time that you have freedom in your life is when you will commit your life to Christ and say, God, I'm yours. For the first time in your life, you'll have the ability to do something that in the eyes of God is righteous, is correct, is honoring to him. Before that, Everything you do, the Bible says, is considered a filthy rag. I don't care how good it is. I don't care how many homeless people you feed. I don't care how many people you give money to. It doesn't make any difference. That's a work. God looks at that from a non-believer and says, you know what? Big deal. You think that's going to get you to heaven? That's not going to get you to heaven. There's only one way to heaven. That's through the cross of Christ. And so he says here, you were slaves of sin. We're all there. We were all there. Everybody. I don't care from the Pope on down. 
But then he says this. Look at what he says. Verse 17. But you have become obedient from the heart. You have become obedient from the heart. What's he saying here? Paul's saying, you know what? This wasn't something that was imposed upon you. You know, you just didn't start coming to church and they said, oh, by the way, at our church here, here's 10 rules you've got to follow to be part of our church. Oh, okay, I guess I've got to do these 10 rules now. I feel pretty good about myself. That's not going to save you. That's not going to help you. You have to have your heart changed. And that's what Paul says here. You have obeyed from the heart. See, when we come to Christ, it's not something that we do on the outside that saves us. We have, to, we have to remind ourselves this over and over again because we live in a, a culture today, even within Christianity, that wants to make salvation all about raising your hand or walking down an aisle or throwing a stick in a fire at a campground or something and, quote, committing your life to Christ. So you talk to people. Well, I prayed the prayer when I was five. What prayer? Well, the sinner's prayer. Really? My answer is always, so what? What's that mean? That's not even in the Bible. I don't remember Jesus going around saying, oh, you want to follow me here? Pray this little prayer, and then you can follow me. I don't, I don't remember that. When we come to Christ, it's not something on the outside that changes us. It's not some water baptism or joining a church, or some other religious ritual that will save your soul. Some people go to church every week and light a candle. Some people take a pilgrimage. This is not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying it's not something on the outside. He says very clearly here, It wasn't something on the outside. It says it was something inside the heart. What happened to their heart? What does it say? It says they have become obedient from the heart. They become obedient. What's that mean? Simply, they mean that means they obeyed. They obeyed. Well, how does this fit into our theology? I mean, if we're saying that salvation is all a work of God and and we don't play a part in it here, really, how does this work out? Salvation is a work of God. The Bible clearly says that. But somehow you're not passively transported from, from, from life or from death to life. You know, you don't go to bed one night as a sinner, as someone who hates God, who's, someone who's, who's removed from a relationship with God because of your sin, and you wake up the next morning going, wow, I just feel different today. I don't know what happened. It doesn't happen that way. It never happens that way. You're not just involuntarily picked up and, and put over in the camp of the faithful. And we have to be careful sometimes when we're teaching on the sovereignty of God, when we come to the doctrine of election, when we come to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Because there's some people that take that to an extreme, which I would call fatalism. 
to the point where, well, God's got it all figured out anyway. Nothing we can do to change it. Matter of fact, there's probably people being saved. They don't even know they're saved. There's people that actually believe that. There's theologians that believe that a person can be redeemed and not even know it. I mean, it sounds crazy, but that's what they believe. Because God already did it. He just hasn't told you yet. I mean, that's hard to understand. Listen, because you never see salvation occurring apart from the act of commitment to Christ. In the Bible, whenever you see salvation taking place, there's always an act of commitment to Christ that is tied to that. It's not just someone off on their own and all of a sudden, you know, boom, they're saved. No. They respond. What do they respond to? They respond to the message of the gospel. The Bible says, how are they going to get saved if they, don't have, if they can't hear the message, if there's not a preacher, if there's not Christians going out sharing the message of the gospel, living the message of the gospel? And in our text here, if you look over and over again, he uses the word obey or obedience in verses 15 there to 18. And so you kind of ask the question, okay, Paul, well, what are we to obey? <laughs> I mean, do we have some book we got to follow or something? Look at what he says. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to what? To the standard of teaching to which you were committed. King James, unfortunately, has that wrong. It has that reversed which was committed to you. That's not what the original language says. It says, no. What the text clearly states is that what are we obedient to, Paul? From the heart to the standard of teaching to which we were committed. What do you obey? What are you being obedient to as a Christian? It's not just some vague thing out there in the middle of nowhere. You hear this all the time. You ask people, oh, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Really? What do you believe? Oh, I believe in God. Great. Anything else? Got anything else for me? Because <laughs> I got news for you. The devil believes in God. Big deal. I don't think he's saved last time I checked. I mean, you have to stop and you have to think about these things because people are speaking in generalities today and they're lost and they're on their way to hell because they think that somehow, oh, I, I believe in Christ, I believe in Jesus, I believe in this, I believe in that. That kind of belief will not save you. There's more than that. So he says, well, what are you supposed to believe in, Paul? And he says there, the standard, or another translation says, the form of doctrine. The body of saving truth. That word standard in the original language is, is tupas, and it means this. It basically has a lot of different uses, but it has the idea of a mold being poured into a mold. Remember in high, uh, middle school, actually, we had a ceramics class. And we used to make greenware out of the slurry stuff they'd make. And you'd pour it into the mold. And then you'd pour some of it out and it would it, let it dry. And you'd have a, a piece of greenware. And then you could kind of 
carve it down and make it nice and smooth, and then you would fire it in the thing. It would become hard, and then you would paint it, and you'd fire it again, and the paint would become all colossal. It was kind of a neat process to see. But the mold really demanded what the shape was going to look like. If I had a mold that was supposed to make a flower pot, and I pulled the stuff in there, poured it in there, and then I opened it up after a day of drying, it didn't look like a football. It looked like a flower pot. Why? Because that's what the mold demanded. See, what what Paul is saying here is, when you came into this world, you were poured into a mold. And you came out after the, 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 the molten metal cooled and God put you on this earth and the mold that you were poured into was a slave of sin. That's what you were. But Paul says, thanks be to God that because of your response to the true gospel by obeying the form into which you were poured, he was able to transform you. It's like God took you and melted you down and poured you into a different form, into a different mold, to make a different form. And that's his analogy here. When God saw us as a slave to sin, by his grace, by his mercy, he said, you know what, I don't like you looking that way. I'm just going to melt you down and I'm going to remold you. I'm going to refashion you. I'm going to transform you by the power of my spirit into a new mold. And that new mold is going to be a form of doctrine, standard of teaching. You can see it over in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. 2 Timothy chapter 1.13, Paul says this, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That word form, tupos, it's used over 16 times in the New Testament. And so it, it, it's really speaking of being melted down by conviction, by the beginning, the, the saving work of the, the Holy Spirit. And now you're a brand new person in Christ. He's remolded you. He's refashioned you. What is that mold? It says they're the form of doctrine. In other words, you've been conformed to the pattern of truth of the gospel. When you heard the gospel, it rang true. And so you committed your life to Christ. And God said, you know what? I'm going to make you a whole new person in Christ. And now you're a, rather than being a statue for sin, you're a statue for righteousness. You're a statue for God. You're a statue for the gospel. So what happens? As a Christian, when you submit yourself to certain teaching, you become a Christian stamp of that teaching. That's why it's so dangerous when people say, well, doctrine doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you believe. Yes, it does. It, it matters more than anything else what you believe. And you can see it. I've been in ministry long enough to see people's lives just ravaged by, and maybe not on purpose, but teaching that was 
inerrant, that was, that was wrong, that was full of errors, I mean. And, and it was important to understand that they were taught in such a way that, boy, and then, then you come and you give them the truth and they're going, whoa, wait, what are you saying? I thought everybody was going to heaven. I thought, you know, I prayed this prayer. I thought that's how I got saved. I thought I got saved by joining the church or being baptized or this or that or speaking in tongues or whatever it might be. And so you've got to take those folks and you've got to say, wait, here's what the truth of the Bible says. Put your experience aside. Let's see what the Bible says about this. And you have to be patient and you have to be kind and you have to be graceful. And hopefully, after they're under the teaching of truth from the Word of God, it will make an impact. Jesus said that when a man is fully discipled, he will be like who? Like his teacher. That's what he says. So our goal in this church is to teach the Word in a way that will make you more like Christ. He's our ultimate teacher. I mean, when you stop and think about it practically, we all have different family backgrounds, right? We, we grew up, you know, I grew up in Pennsylvania, big Catholic family, six brothers, two sisters, mom, dad. Dad was Methodist. My mom was Roman Catholic. That made me who I am today. That impacted the way I, everything from my personality, the way I react with people, everything. And we all have that experience. Why? Because that family made a mark on us. Maybe it, it, maybe it wasn't a good upbringing you had, and so you have negative marks. Maybe you had a blessed upbringing, and you have positive marks. But you bear, really, the image of your family. That family put you in a mold. They made you who you are today. That's why in Romans chapter 12, and we'll get to this eventually, verse 2, he says, don't let the world put you into its mold. If you read that. Don't, don't go be like the world as a Christian. You've been poured into the mold of the, the form of the sound teaching of the gospel. You're a slave, not of sin any longer. You're God recreated you. Now you're a slave to God. But only God could really melt down that person and make him a new person. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. I mean, that's, that's just a wonderful picture of what our transformation is in salvation. You know, you don't become a Christian by, by just kind of going from church to church to church to church. You know, you can't invent your own mold. People today invent their own God. So when you tell them the gospel, you know what? You need to be saved because of your sin. Well, why? Because if you don't, you'll be going to hell. Well, my God won't send anybody to hell. I have a loving God. Okay, I understand that, but it's not the God of the Bible. Because the Bible says this. And they fight you on every point. Because they've recreated God in their own mind. And I think a lot of Christians today, unfortunately, a lot of those, I should qualify that, a lot of people in the church 
whether they're Christians or not, that's for God to decide, but have reinvented their own gospel. So we make excuses, you know, we, well, you know, poor so-and-so, you know, he's had a rough life and, and, you know, he's a Christian, but he's kind of, he's backslidden and, you know, he's doing this and he's doing that and, you know, just, you know, but he's a Christian, he's a Christian, he's a Christian. We keep on wanting to believe that. But the Bible says, Paul says here, you obeyed from your heart. The gospel call reached to your heart. Have you ever tried to get your kids to do something they don't want to do? It's a miserable experience. Just miserable. I mean, it can just make or break your day. But have you ever taken your kids on something they really wanted to do? Because they really desired it in their heart? Man, they can't wait. See, that's what the Christian life is all about. There's a lot of so-called Christians today that are trying to live the Christian life, but God has never transformed their life. They've never transformed their heart. So they're trying to do all the things they see Christians doing, and it's difficult. It's frustrating for them because they're still a slave to sin. They haven't been transformed. They haven't been freed by that. Because somehow they think that if they just keep trying harder and harder, eventually things will fall into place. I mean, you you see here, this this word obey occurs four times just in the text that we've seen. It's obedience of the faithful. It's an obedient life. It's the Christian who's responding to the word of God, just saying, okay, what does God's word say about this? Because I definitely want to obey God's word. Believing Jesus Christ is the initial act of obedience. And then it becomes a life of obedience. Everybody wants their independence today. Nobody likes to be, quote, a slave to anybody. But uh, I'm just being honest with the text. It doesn't say that. It says either you're a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. What do you want? Which one do you want to pick? You know, we think of it somehow as it relates to our kids when they're growing up. You know, man, when I was 18, it was like, whoa, go to school, go to college. In two years, I was living in California. You know, I had my independence. This was great. Thought I was calling my own shots. We're always under someone's rule. We're always under someone being the master. Is it sin or is it Christ? As a Christian, we're always under the Lord. We don't have the right to go out and do whatever we want to do. That's not Christian. We don't have the right to say, well, you know what, I, I, you know, this is my life and and I'm going to live it the way I want to live it. We don't have that choice. A Christian is always marked as one who does what? Who obeys. Who obeys his master. If you don't, you can say whatever you want to try to convince me you are. But I will fall back to what the scripture says and say, no, you're not a Christian. If you're not obeying what Christ teaches us, you're not a Christian. 
True justification, true transformation always produces obedience. And the longer we live for Christ and with Christ, the more obedient we become. Look over with me at Titus chapter uh, 2. Titus chapter 2. Verse 11, it says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then look at what it says in verse 12. What's the purpose of this salvation coming for all people? To train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. So the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for those who respond to the gospel. That's the text there. It doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved. It means those who respond to the gospel, those people, all people. It trains us to renounce these things of the world, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. What is that? That's obedience. Verse 14, look down a little further. It says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Why did God save you? So you could live in the world saying, Hey, I'm saved. I'm under all my sins are forgiven. I'm, you know, I get a free pass on everything now. I'm just going to do whatever I want. No. He saved you, it says, for good works. We're saved onto good works. 1 Peter 1.22 says the same thing. It says, seeing that you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. You become a new creation in Christ. And you live a life of obedience as a result. And that kind of brings us to where we're at in this text. Back to Romans 6.18. How do you win over this sin problem? Because please hear me, I'm not saying that as a Christian you never sin. That's not what I'm saying. If you think that's what I'm saying, you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. We all will struggle with sin till the day we die or the Lord comes back to pick us up. Why is that? Because we're in this fleshly body. And, and Satan uses this fleshly body, this 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 body, which is supposed to be a temple for the Holy Spirit, the body itself isn't evil, but that's how sin operates. It operates through this body. So once we get rid of this body, we will be sinless because we'll be in a glorified body. What a wonderful day that would be. Sin always dishonors the Lord. A holy life always glorifies Him. It always honors the Lord. What does sin do in our life? It disrupts fellowship. It causes issue. A holy life allows us to have sweet communion with our Lord. So, our default should be we want to win over sin. We don't want to figure out a way around it. We don't want to figure out a way so we can sin more. We want to say, no, we want to sin less. To win over sin... We need to give ourselves as a slave to righteousness in view of three things. Our spiritual past, our spiritual present, and our spiritual 
future. So the first point in your outline there is to win over sin, give yourself as a slave to righteousness. Look at what he says in verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. What's Paul saying? He's saying, look, there's a heart. I I don't know how I'm going to explain this to you. This is going to be difficult. So I'm just going to kind of boil it down into some human terms that you will understand. The reason I have to do that is because of the weakness of your flesh. This fleshly body that I just spoke of. He says, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness or further sin, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Now remember, he's talking to Christians and he's saying, this is your state. This is your position. This is who you are in Christ. He's not... It's not a command in the sense of him telling us to kind of pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do this. He's saying this should be happening in your life as a Christian. And he says, because you're a frail human being, because you're just like me, I've got to kind of boil this down and, and make this kind of simple. So I'm just going to use this illustration of slavery because we all understand what slavery is. And so he says there, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. It means to give yourself as a slave to sin. Continually. Continually. One commentator makes this this point. He says... He thus makes clear that Christians should serve righteousness with all the single-minded dedication that characterized their pre-Christian service of such idols as self, money, lust, pleasure, and power. I mean, you may not think of yourself as a bad person, and in the world's eyes, most of you probably are not. Probably well, upstanding citizens in our community, and that's great. But that's not going to get you to heaven. He says, since we repeatedly gave ourselves to those false gods, so now we must repeatedly give ourselves to serve God and righteousness. Remember, we're, we're in a series here saying you've got to serve somebody. It's either going to be sin or God. Whose slave do you have? You only have the two options. That's it. There's not a third horse in the race. Being a slave of sin leads to ultimate death, spiritual death, condemnation in hell forever. Spiritual death is the wage that sin earns. On the other hand, if you're a slave of God, if you're a slave of Christ, you have eternal life with God, forever, in heaven. The wage earned by righteousness is God's God's free gift. He gives it to us. But because he gives us a gift, we have to be characterized by that gift. Verse 20 
you can tell where you're headed by how this process is going in your own life, the process of sanctification, the process of growing in holiness each and every day. Where are you at? Are you growing more like Christ? Or has nothing changed? You're the same old person you were always, you've always been. You're just a person that comes to church now. This is truth that you have to grapple with, and you have to grapple with it deep in your heart. As Paul says, it's obedience from the heart. Second Corinthians 13.5, Paul tells us, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Do you love God more than you used to love Him? Do you hate your own sin more and more? Do you love others more and more? Do you see yourself as laying down your own rights to serve others? Do you see the fruit of the Spirit more and more in your daily lives? Or has nothing changed? Are you still a slave to sin, to unrighteousness? Secondly, to win over sin, remember your shameful, sinful Uh, spiritual past as a slave of sin. And he says this in verses 20 to 21. He says, For when you were slaves of sin, we were all there, you were free in regard to righteousness. You were free in regard to righteousness. Even if you were raised in a Christian family, beloved, You were a slave to sin. We're all in the same boat together. Unbelievers sin because they want to sin. They like sinning. And more sin leads to more sin. Even when they know that they're addicted to drugs, to alcohol, to pornography, to homosexuality, whatever it might be, whatever the sin is, and that's what they are, they're sins. Even though these sins are causing huge problems in their life, they keep on doing them because they like sinning, frankly. And the only way to be delivered from that is to God give you a new nature to change you, to give you a new birth, to reform you, to transform you into the image of Christ. And so he says here in verse 20, you were slaves of sin and you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you kind of thought Basically, you could do whatever you wanted to do. That's never the case, but that's kind of what he's saying here. And he says in verse 21, remember what that fruit was that you were getting at the time of those things that you were now ashamed of. What are the benefits of sin? Sometimes it's good to reflect on that to remind ourselves of those sins 
that caused us to be humbled and maybe allow us now to deal more graciously with fellow sinners because we were there, we walked in their shoes. We don't have any right to be self-righteous or judgmental toward those who are still slaves of sin. Watched the interview with a certain individual who's doing this whole transgender thing. And my heart broke as I listened to this individual explain his life, explain what's going on in his mind, explain that somehow he thinks that this is, for the first time, he can truly be free to be who he wants to be. (laughs) Acting as a woman. Kind of bizarre. All you have to do is look at the psychological studies on folks like that. They can do the whole thing, do every change possible, including the physical aspect of it. Majority of them still end up committing suicide because they're unhappy. They're miserable. They're confused. They're deceived by the enemy. They're a victim of the enemy. We need to pray for people like that. We don't need to look down our righteous noses at them and say, yeah, they get, get what they deserve. Secondly, we need to thank God for loving us in spite of our sin and saying, sending Christ to die for your sins. I mean, we're celebrating communion time here in a couple minutes. I mean, do you think that when Jesus died on the cross, that he died for everybody but you because you're just so righteous and so good? No. He sang a song earlier that reflected on Christ's time on the cross and how it personally relates to each one of us. We need to thank God that he he loved us in spite of our sinfulness. I was thinking the other day, my wife and I celebrated, get this right, our 22nd wedding anniversary. (laughs) And I was thinking, wow, she still loves me after 22 years. That says something right there. Because you may see some guy up here preaching behind a pulpit, but you know what? I can just be a downright jerk sometimes. That's just, you know, I'm not hiding behind anything here. That's just the truth. And I'm thinking, wow. You know, God definitely has a hand of protection on our relationship. Because it probably would have dissolved years ago if it wasn't for that. We need to thank God that he loves us in spite of who we are. In spite of our own stupid, sinful self. And the dumb, idiotic things we do sometimes that cause him dishonor. He still loves us. still forgives us. That should drive us to live for him more and more each day. And I think when you reflect on your past sins, it, it guards us. It puts us on guard. that We don't want to fall back there. We don't want to repeat the same thing over and over and over again. Let me tell you, once you've yielded to a sin, it will always hold a powerful attraction. Even when you're in the midst of a wonderful fellowship time and boy, you're, you're singing songs or whatever, that sin can just come right up in your mind. 
That's how sin is. We need to be on guard. And so to win over sin, you have to present yourself as a slave to righteousness and say, you know what, I'm not going to listen to that. I don't need to listen to that. He has no, Satan has no, sin has no power over me anymore as a Christian. For the first time in my life, I can do what God wants me to do. And pray and ask God to give you the strength to do that. The third point here in your outline, to win over sin, keep in mind your blessed, spiritual, present. Keep in mind your blessed, spiritual, present as a slave of God. He says there in verse 22, but now having been freed from sin. Amen? Amen. That's a good place for an amen. But now having been freed from sin... Amen. All right. And enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. He points three, four things here. Your present, your spiritual present is due to a great change that God has made in your life. You didn't get saved because you saved yourself. It goes right back to thank God that he did it. That's so important to understand that. That we were slaves to sin, but now we're free to live for him in righteousness. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you, were fo- who, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You know, before you were a Christian, you had no relationship with God. You had a... At best, you had a relationship of animosity. You were under the wrath of God. That's why Christ came and he lived a sinless life 33 some years. And then he went to the cross willingly and he died on the cross even though he committed no crime. He gave himself for us. Christ died in our place. He died feeling the wrath of God, his own father. A wrath that equaled the sins of all those who would ever put their faith and trust in Christ. Even though he never committed one sin, he had to bear the penalty of all those sins. And he says in Ephesians 5.8, You were formerly in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Heard an old black preacher one time preaching. He said this. We ain't what we want to be. We ain't what we're going to be. But thank God we ain't what we was. See, if you've met Christ as your Savior, there's a huge but now in your life. It's different. It's a new chapter. Be there in your outline. Your spiritual present resets, rests on your new position in Christ. Your spiritual present rests on your new position in Christ. We're in a new position with God. God has transformed us. He's made us. We have a, a brand new relationship. And he says that we've been freed from sin. We've been made a sl- slave of righteousness in Christ. That's our new position. God did it through his grace, through his power. 
And this is true of every Christian on the face of the earth. We've got to stop thinking that there's some Christians that somehow you know, attain a higher level of spirituality than others. We're all in the same boat together. Either we're walking for Christ, with Christ and living for him or we're not. And Paul repeatedly states here in verses uh, 2 to 8 of chapter 6 of Romans, in Christ we all died to sin, we become raised in the newness of life. Therefore, be what you are now. That's his, that's his point. Live in the light of your new position in Christ. For the first time, you don't have to listen to that old sinful voice telling you what to do anymore. You have the power to say no. You have the power to through the power of the Holy Spirit, to live a life that's honoring to Christ. See there, your spiritual present includes the many wonderful benefits of sanctification. I mean, when, when Satan paints your old life of sin, you kind of think, oh, that's, that's when I had freedom and pleasure and all that stuff. It's a lie. It's a lie. Life of sin destroys fellowship with the gracious, kind, and loving Heavenly Father that we serve. Sin destroys loving human relationships. I mean, sin is a plague. It brings tears to generations of family members, to sinful parents who abuse their children, to rebellious Children who cast off the wise guidance and experience of their parents. Sinful people abuse their bodies with alcohol, tobacco, drugs. I mean, it's just a destructive force. Why would you want to give in to it? On the other hand, holiness blesses those who walk in it and all those around it. Holy people enjoying fellowship with the living God. Holy husbands sacrificially love their wives as Christ loved the church. They tenderly seek the blessing and benefit of their wives. Holy fathers show the grace and kindness of the Lord to their children, training them to love and follow the Lord for their own good. Holy young people walk in ways of the Lord that honor Him. They avoid the terrible scars that come from sexual immorality, drugs, alcohol, in abusive relationships. Holy church members care for one another. They encourage the faint-hearted. They help the weak. They be patient. They're kind. They're loving toward one another. Matthew Henry was a well-known pastor and Bible commentator. He was on his deathbed in 1714 at the age of 52. You read about it, it says he endured the loss of his first wife and of three children. He was relatively young. He could have complained about his early death, but he said to a friend, you have, you have been used to take notice of the sayings of dying men. This is mine, that a life spent in the service of God And communion with him is the most comfortable and pleasant life that one can live in this present world. 
See, that's the benefit of being enslaved to God. When you're tempted to sin, remember your spiritual present, that you are a slave of God, not a slave of sin. Last point here, and we'll have communion. Point number four, to win over sin, look forward to your glorious spiritual future, your eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at what he says in verse 23. He says, for the wages of sin is death. That's what you have to look forward to, spiritual death. Eternal punishment in hell forever under the wrath of God. But, it says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, that's what God offers us. That's what God gives us. If you want the wages of sin, well then have at it. If you want eternal life with God, then you need to come to Christ. You need to bend your heart. You need to say, you know what, God? Be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me. We don't work for our salvation, beloved. It's a gift. You simply reach out and take it. The word wages here was used of a soldier's pay. Picture a a cruel dictator. Doesn't care about the soldiers that serve him. They're only pawns to preserve his luxurious lifestyle. They're out on the front lines and the battle lines taking bullets and shrapnel and eating horrible rations separated from the comforts of their home. Their wage is death. See, that's the wage that sin pays its servants. You may be a young person here today thinking, well, you know, I'm young. I can kind of sow my oats. No, you can't. You'll pay dearly for that. Commit your life to Christ. Come to the Savior. It's God's offer of a free gift, freedom from sin, a joyous life of knowing the only one and true God, your Creator God. Father, we thank you this morning for our time in your word. Lord, we thank you that you have provided for us a way of salvation. Even though we're all in the same boat as far as sinfulness goes, none of us is good enough to get to heaven. 